Okay. We are going to be reading Philippians 3, verse 12 through Philippians chapter 4, verse 9. Not that, I've already, not that I have already attained, or am I already perfected, but I press on that I may lay hold of that, which, of that for which Christ Jesus has laid hold of me. Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended, but one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to the things which, which are ahead. I press toward the goal for the prize of the upper call of God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, let us, as many as are mature, have this mind. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal, reveal even this to you. Nevertheless, to the, to the degree that we have already attained, let us walk by the same rule, let us be of the same mind. Brethren, join in following my example, and note those who walk, or so walk, as you have us for a pattern. For many walk, of whom I have told you often, and now tell you even weeping, that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, and whose glory is in their shame, who set their mind on earthly things. For our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body that it may be conformed to his glorious body, according to the working by which he is able even to subdue all things to himself. Therefore, my beloved and longed-for brethren, my joy and crown, so stand fast in the Lord, beloved. I implore Iodia, and I implore Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. And I urge you also, true companion, help these women who labored with me in the gospel, with Clement also, and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let your gentleness be known to all men. The Lord is at hand. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Finally, brethren, Whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, and whatever things are of good report, if there is any virtue, and if there is anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things. The things which you learned and received and heard and saw in me, these do, and the God of peace will be with you. Please join me in prayer. Father, we rejoice in knowing that there's forgiveness at the cross. We thank you, Lord, for your great mercy. We thank you, Lord, for your abundant grace. Father, you, in sending your Son, had a plan that was redemptive in nature. It was a plan that was going to make right. It was a plan that was going to involve and include your Son becoming our substitute. 
The song we just sang spoke of him taking the blame. He bore our wrath. And we stand forgiven at the cross. Father, we thank you for the great power of the cross. Lord, just now we thank you for this word that we have opened before us. We thank you for your son in whom we've been given life, freedom, and full-time joy. Teach us, Lord, what it is to stand fast in one spirit, with one mind, and impress upon us what it is to strive together for the faith of the gospel. Help us recognize the patterns and examples around us that we need to be following. Grant us discernment that we might know which way to go in these days ahead. I pray, Father, that you would lead us in the way everlasting. Help us to see that we know the difference between the way of this world and the way of the cross. They're quite different. Grant us discernment to know which path and to walk in the right path. May the cross be our glory all our days for your sake, Lord. We have only one life to offer you, Lord. I pray that you would claim this life for your own, that it would be a life used and spent every moment for you. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. As we begin looking at Philippians 3, 17 through 4, verse 1 this morning, I'd like to preface that by having you turn backward in the book of Ephesians for just a moment. Ephesians chapter 6. I'd like to read just a few of the verses here in Ephesians 6 that I believe set the stage for what we're talking about here this morning. Standing fast in the Lord. Again, I I, I say this time and again, I want to make clear that I don't make these things up. They're actually in the scripture. And in chapter 4, verse 1 says, it's kind of the conclusion, the summary of it all. So stand fast in the Lord. Okay? As a precursor to this and an understanding of what it is to stand fast in the Lord, I think Ephesians 6. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God. Why? Because it, it, it just looks nice? No, that you may be able to stand against the wiles or schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. We, we, we are a people who need to constantly hear that. Uh, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. Principalities, powers against the rulers of darkness of this age, against the spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all, to stand. Stand, therefore. Three different times. 
And the reason I wanted to read these verses, it goes on obviously and talks about the different pieces of the armor of God that we're to put on as his children. Keep in mind, this is an armor that is fit and suited specifically for his children. Okay? He's intended for us to put these things on. That we might be able to stand. You want to know why some in the Lord aren't standing all that much? Perhaps it's because we failed to put on the armor. Perhaps it's because we failed to understand that standing in the Lord isn't something that automatically happens. Perhaps we fail to understand that standing fast in the Lord, it it has in mind this assumption that we're to stand fast against opposition. If I was to have one of you come forward and I'd say up here, Ben, hey, Ben, stand here for me. I think Ben could do that really well, and he could probably stand for quite a long time. But if I had Ben come up here and I had lots of different elements beating against him, if I had some folks come up here with boxing gloves and bonk, 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 I don't know how well he'd be able to stand. Right? See, I think sometimes we've forgotten that the call to stand fast in the Lord is in the context of opposition. That's why we are called to stand fast. And I think Ephesians 6 really just hammers that really well for us. That's why I want to begin there as we think about standing fast in the Lord. What is it to stand fast in the Lord? You see, the challenge comes not when things are going great and you're in the presence of other believers who are encouraging you and supporting you. How are you going to respond when the enemy is pressing in? What's your reaction to the storms of life that hit hard? You remember the end of the the Sermon on the Mount? Remember the the, the individual who's the wise man and the foolish man? And the one has his life built on the rock and the other is built on what? Sinking sand. And when the storms of life come, and you notice as Jesus is teaching the storm, same storms, same elements hit both people. And the one who's grounded on the rock stands. The one who has built his life upon sand, what happens? Crash, fall. Is your life currently being built upon the rock? Or is it being built on sinking sand? You see, enemy opposition will reveal much about you. Are you going to be in a position to stand fast against the enemy? Or will you, as one writer said, will you collapse under persecution? Will you compromise? Will you fail under testing? Will you yield to temptation and make a habit of sin in your life? The big idea this morning is to stand fast in the way of the cross. In the way of the Lord. Stand fast in the Lord. Stand fast in the way of the cross. I'm using those interchangeably. In the Lord is, if we're going to stand in the Lord, we're going to need to also understand what it is to stand fast in the way of the cross. Why the need or why the call 
to stand fast in the cross. Isn't standing fast a given for those of us in Christ? That's, that's, it, may be, it may be something that you, you think about or consider. Isn't that, isn't that a given? What, what, makes, what makes standing fast in the cross so difficult in this life, church? You probably can come up with some answers to that pretty quickly. How does this text before us here in Philippians 3, how does it characterize a man and a woman who stands fast in the Lord? I'd like us to see this morning from the scripture that if we're going to stand fast in the Lord, if we're going to stand fast in the way of the cross, there's three things here I want us to see from the text. First one is that we note the godly examples and patterns. If we're going to stand fast in the way of the cross, if we're going to stand fast in the Lord, it's important we note the godly examples and the patterns. Verse 17. Look with me at the text. Brethren, join in following my example and note those who so walk as you have us for a pattern. Now, there's four words here that I'd like to just bring to your attention right up front from this verse that I think are helpful. The first word is actually in our English language. It, has, it comprises a few of the English words. Join in following. Summimites. Joint imitator. Fellow imitator. It's the idea of imitating with someone else. And Paul says, brethren... Join in following. He goes on, he uses this word in the New King James, note. Note. The idea of note here, by the way, it's it's the same word used in a different form uh, that he used back in chapter 3 when he says, I press toward uh, the goal for the prize. I press toward the goal. Uh, the, The idea of the mark, right? It's used differently there. Here he's talking about mark or note from a verb standpoint. It's to fix one's attention on. And in this particular text, it's to mark and follow. It's not just to mark as though, oh, I'm observing this. It's to mark it and follow. Go. The third word I'd like to bring to your attention from that verse 17 is walk. It's the word peripateo, a a very familiar uh, Greek word that that has in mind to to live, uh, to conduct one's life, to to maintain, I like that idea, to maintain a certain walk of life and conduct, to sustain a particular walk and life. The last word I'd like to bring to your attention in verse 17 is the word pattern. Which is a word that's formed, uh, the idea of the word, it's a word that's formed by by a blow or by an impression. It's a word in the English language that we come across in the text oftentimes a pattern or a type or an example. Okay, a tupas. That's the idea of the word, it's a pattern, an example. 
Well, Paul says here in 17, he's calling a church here to follow my example. Join in following my example. Now, the context tells us something about Paul's example, doesn't it? He, he, he hasn't, he told us last week in the text that he hasn't arrived yet spiritually, right? He's not been fully perfected as of yet. He longs for that time. And he speaks about that here in this text today. But he understands he hasn't arrived there yet. He's pressing toward the goal, chapter 3, verse 14. He's longing for that goal, for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. He's looking forward. He's reaching forward to those things which are ahead. His life has been characterized by that one thing mentality we spoke of last week. To be conformed into the image of his son. And for Paul, we saw early on in chapter 1, for him to live was what? Christ. To live is Christ. His life is an example of one fervent pursuit of Jesus Christ. We see also that Paul humbled himself and set aside a whole pile of things. We read that at the beginning of chapter 3. He set aside all of these other things, these things that he used to consider and hug and hold on to and embrace as these were important. Oh, look at what I've got. He, he relished those. But then in order that he might gain Christ and be found in him, he was willing to set all those on the ash heap, set them aside, consider them even as rubbish for the sake of Christ. One commentator here, I appreciate these words and I think this might be helpful for all of us, so I'll share this. He, he shares a, a, a question of the text here and he asks a question which is a significant question in light of what Paul says in 17. Brethren, join in following my example. Is pointing to myself a picture of humility? It's a great question from the text. Is pointing to myself... A picture of humility. He, lists, he goes on and he lists four different things for us. He says, Paul had already reminded them of Christ as their supreme example in chapter 2, verses 5 through 8, right? He talked about Christ's life and, and how he made himself of no reputation. He emptied himself, right? Remember, all these things. He, was, he became obedient to the point of death. He's already reminded them of Christ as the supreme example. Secondly, Paul is urging his fellow followers of Christ to strive after perfection in the full awareness that they were still far removed from the ideal as was he. He was far removed also. So he's calling them to follow his example, not from the standpoint that Paul's got it all figured out, but that they can do this together as they're looking to Christ. The third thing he gives of this is pointing to myself a picture of humility. He says, surrounded by immor immorality on the part of pagans and nominal Christians, title-carrying, card-holding Christians, <laughs> these Philippians needed a concrete example of Christian devotion, sort of like a, a picture lesson. You remember the old flannel boards growing up? And you might remember being in, in, in the room. I know I do. I remember this in the, as, a, as a young person. And I remember the teacher had this big flannel board. And they would tell the Bible story. But they weren't just telling me the Bible story. They were showing me the Bible story. See, sometimes we need a picture, don't we? It's helpful to have a picture. And I think if we're going to stand fast in the Lord today... 
it's helpful that we're noting the godly examples and the patterns. He also gives the, the fourth and final uh, answer to that question, uh, is pointing to myself a picture of humility. Notice in the text it says, as you have us for a pattern. Paul is not just talking about himself. More than likely he's including Timothy, he's including Epaphroditus, the two he's already talking about in the text. Maybe some others as well. But, but not just himself. I was reminded of a song that was put out years ago. A familiar song maybe to some of you. But the chorus lyrics go, Lord, I want to be just like you. Because he, talking about his son, he wants to be just like me. I want to be a holy example for his innocent eyes to see. I love this next line. Help me be a living Bible Lord. What we just said, help me be a, a picture, right? Help me be a living Bible. That I don't just know what it says. I'm living it out so that those under my care can see what this looks like. I would venture to say that the majority of you here who are children in the home, maybe you're still living in the home, but you are grown, the older you get, the more you want not to hear the message, you want to see the message. Early on, you take dad and mom at their word. Lord willing, you do, that is. But the older you get, you start to observe and you start to piece together what dad and mom's saying and you start to piece together what dad and mom's doing and what dad and mom say and what dad and mom do when those are like way far apart from each other, you're probably going, hmm. But when dad and mom are actually making efforts in the Lord as the Spirit enables them to not only say these things but endeavor to live these things... That's the picture. Help me be a living Bible, Lord, that my little boy can read. I want to be just like you because he wants to be like me. There's some good instruction in thinking about being that picture for those under our care and those around us. I think we could also see as we look at verse 17 and the need for godly patterns and examples Paul said elsewhere, right, in Corinthians 11.1, 1, remember that passage of Scripture in 11.1, 1, where he says, imitate me just as I also imitate Christ. Imitate me as I also imitate Christ. You know, I would venture to say that the majority of us here uh, w- would want to echo this to others. We would not want others to imitate us as we are not imitating Christ. But as we imitate Christ, we would want others and welcome others and call others to imitate us. It's it's our hope that we're drawn to this as a believer in the Lord Jesus. Paul is calling the church to imitate him as he imitates Christ. It's not a follow me for the sake of looking at how good I'm doing. And boy, if you just follow me, then you can be really good too. That's not what Paul's advocating. It's follow me as I'm endeavoring to walk in the way of Christ. Follow me as I'm endeavoring to walk in the way of the cross. 
join together in following my example as I make every effort to follow Jesus. Notice also in verse 17, he says, Note those who so walk. Brethren, join in following my example and note or mark those who so walk. Mark well with the intent to follow. This idea of noting seems to carry along a sense of discernment. Are you able to note those who are living as godly examples? As patterns of one who is walking in the way of the cross? Are you more attracted to the examples and the patterns of those walking in the way of the cross? Or are you more drawn to those people, those examples and patterns of those who walk in the way of the world? Friends, there's a difference. These people are different. They're walking two different tracks. I love this passage. You might turn to it. I think it's a great contrast to what we're reading here in Philippians 3. In Romans chapter 16, this is right at the end of the letter. In verse 17, listen to what Paul says here. Now I urge you, brethren, note, there's the word, note those who cause divisions and offenses, contrary to the doctrine which you learned, and avoid them. Here's the contrast. Paul in Philippians chapter 3, it says, says, note those who so walk according to the way of the cross. Note and follow. Here at the end of Romans, he says, note and avoid. Friends, it's important we're able to do both. If we're going to stand fast in the way of the cross, if we're going to stand fast in the Lord, we must note the godly examples and patterns. Note them. But we must also understand, this is why it was so important we started out with this Ephesians 6 passage. If we're going to stand, we need to also be aware of the other side. Can you discern between the two? One final word on verse 17 that I think is important to bring forward here. I want you to see the twofold, it's really a twofold charge in the text. I think there's two things here that I'd like for you to, to consider with verse 17 in particular. Be on the lookout, note, be on the lookout for godly patterns and examples. Okay? Be on the lookout. We need godly patterns and examples around us, friends. But I think there's also a second charge in this text. And it's this. Be a godly pattern and example. You know, some of us up to this point, perhaps, all we've done is considered godly examples and patterns that are out there. I want to encourage you this morning to be a godly pattern and example. Be someone who can say, imitate me as I am imitating and following and pursuing Christ. Unbeknownst to you as you're sitting in the chair this morning, there are perhaps some people looking to you 
and maybe see you today, they see you as a godly example and pattern in their life. Someone that they're looking up to. To try and, they're, they're, they're seeing you. For them, you are their picture story. They, they see you and they are reminded of the way of Christ. Let's not lose track of the fact that, yes, we are to be about noting the godly examples and patterns, but let's also remember that we need to be that for others. Let's not lose that, okay? So if we're going to stand fast in the Lord, if we're going to stand fast in the way of the cross, we need to note these godly examples and patterns, but also the text goes on in 18 and 19. We need to discern enemy tendencies. We need to discern enemy tendencies. The text says this, 18 and 19, For many walk, of whom I have told you often, and now tell you even weeping, that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, whose glory is in their shame, who set their mind on earthly things. Paul says, note the godly patterns and examples because there are many, you might underline that, there there are many who walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. If you fail to note the godly patterns and examples around you, if you fail then to follow them, you will find yourself subject to falling prey to the enemies. Which, according to the text, are many. Many walk. That word walk is the same word we just read in verse 17. Peripatia, it's the same word. Many walk. Many are conducting their life in a certain way. Many are maintaining this certain way and conduct about their walk. And it's what we see here in 18 and 19. It's contrasted with the walk in verse 17. These are different kinds of walks. Different consistencies. Different walks. They're walking in different ways. The the pattern of their lives are such, they're walking in two different directions. Notice from the text... Paul provides two pieces of information concerning these enemies in verse 18. Many walk. The first part says, of whom I have told you often. This is not the first time that he's talked about these enemies. Perhaps while he was with them in Philippi, he was able to remind them. He was able to speak to them quite often about the enemies of the cross. As a parent who instructs his children in the way of righteousness. Paul had often instructed the church at Philippi about these enemies. We might call this uh, warnings. Paul had no doubt warned the church on many occasions, often about these enemies. He goes on, the second piece here that he shares in 18, not only has he told them 
often about these enemies, but he says, and now, present tense, now as I'm writing to you, now tell you even weeping. He's telling them with tears. The idea here is a a crying out loud. He's crying out as he speaks about this subject. As we read, maybe one of the questions that comes forward is why would he be weeping about this? I believe two primary reasons. I'll give them to you from the text in terms of why. These are characteristic of what we know about Paul. First of all, tears come as he thinks about the influence these enemies will have upon the church at Philippi. Paul is in prison, remember? He's no longer beside them. He's no longer walking beside them. He's no longer right there, their visual image of that picture story. He's far removed from them. He's in a Roman imprisonment. And he's unable to walk them through some of these things. And Paul recognizes the dangers of these enemies and the leverage that they're going to have among the flock, drawing some away, perhaps teaching them things other than the pattern of sound teaching. That's why I believe the first reason he's weeping as he's sharing this. But I believe, secondly, tears also come as he considers the plight of these enemies. Romans chapter 10, verse 1, Paul says, Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved. Here he's speaking about his own countrymen, Jewish countrymen, many of whom were not saved, many of whom had stumbled over the stumbling block. Paul writes in Corinthians chapter 9 and verse 19 and 23 says, For though I am free from all men, I have made myself a servant to all that I might win the more. Now this I do for the gospel's sake, that I may be partaker of it with you, he says to the church at Corinth. He does what he does. He reaches out to the lost for the sake of the gospel. I want you to connect Paul's heart here. He's weeping. He's weeping because he knows the damage that these enemies can inflict upon the church, but he's also weeping because of his heart for the lost. And as I was thinking about Paul's heart for the lost, I was reminded here in this specific point how much he is imitating that of his Lord. In Luke's Gospel, chapter 23, just before the cross, Jesus says, when they had come to the place called Calvary, Luke 23, verses 33 and 34, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on the right, the other on the left. Then Jesus said, and we get the idea and the impression that he said these words while he's on the cross. Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. The very ones who put the nails in his hands and feet. The very ones who were shouting, crucify him, crucify him. The very ones who were putting forth false testimony against Christ. We see the heart of Christ. It's not, Father, pour down your fire on these people right now. But instead, it's Father, forgive them, for they know not what they're doing. 
Notice what comes next in the text is a list of sorts in verse 19. I'd like to walk through that list quickly. Um, There's four parts there in verse 19. Again, we're looking at discerning enemy tendencies. Here's the first tendency. It says that these enemies, their end, whose end is destruction, whose end, the word as telos, it's the word we've seen before in this book of Philippians. Their end is destruction. Enemies of the cross of Christ will perish. They will be destroyed. They will not stand. In fact, we see that contrast played out pretty well in Psalm chapter 1, verses 4 through 6. 1 through 3 gives us the righteous, godly man. Verses 4, 5, and 6 says, The ungodly are not so, but are like the chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore the ungodly shall not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous. The Lord knows, I would say this, the way, those in the way of the cross. He knows those who are His, the Bible says. And the very last part of that verse says, but the way of the ungodly shall perish. Destruction has in mind eternal separation from God in a place that the Bible calls hell. We don't like to talk a whole lot about hell today. We don't like to hear much about hell today. But the Bible actually speaks of it as a place contrasting with that of heaven. The end of these enemies of the cross of Christ is destruction, eternal torment. While I won't go in depth on this, there are many today who believe that this destruction is simply just uh, one being annihilated. Just, they're gone. Um, That's not what I see in the scripture. Everlasting separation from God. You remember the parable of Lazarus? Uh, That'd give you a good picture. I believe it's in Luke 16. A good picture of what we're talking about here when we talk about destruction. Eternal separation from God. Torment. You remember how bad it was for, for he, was, he was crying out, hey, can somebody come here? I'm, I'm burning up. That doesn't sound like one who's just blipped off the scene. He's in torment. Their end is destruction. Galatians 6 verse 8 says, he who sows in, in, in a habitual way, He who sows to the flesh will of the flesh reap, what? Corruption. Destruction. (laughs) But he who sows to the Spirit will reap everlasting life. Second one, whose glory. End is destruction, whose, whose God is their belly. Whose God is their belly. And here we see, as we look at at the idea here of the God is, is their belly. That's a sort of a funny translation. Um, we read that and think immediately of our own stomachs. Literally, that's the idea. That's the word, koilea, our stomachs. From an uh, anatomy perspective, that's what, what it's getting at. But I believe metaphorically here, as Paul is saying, that these enemies, their God is their, their, their belly. It really comprises all of the stuff in the body, the sensual desires of the body, 
many of the uh, wants of the flesh, the things that make up the body. What maybe what we would call uh, one writer says the the appetites, right? The fleshly appetites of the body, whose end is destruction, whose god is their belly. And you think about people who are living for their own selfish pleasures today. What's interesting here is this, is this is quite a contrast, isn't it? We're talking about standing fast in the Lord, in the, in the way of the cross. Those who are standing fast in the way of the cross, um, if we're imitating the Christ of the cross, we're seeing the Christ of the cross was willing to set aside his wants, his desires, for the sake of what the Father had in mind for him in this redemptive plan. And so when we look at discerning enemy tendencies, we need to understand that there are folks, many folks, who's God. When we think about God, God is, is like, what is the, the one thing? It's just like our allegiance. Whose God is their belly, their appetites. What can I give myself? How can I make myself, here's the million dollar question, happy? And if we're not careful, we fall into and pattern ourselves more like the enemy than we do the godly example. We've got to be real careful here. Careful, careful, alert. Who we're following. What is your God? Who is your God? I hope and pray that we see the difference between one who has a God as their, their desires, their appetites, things that are going to please them, things that, that just, are, they're all about spending their resources, they're all about investing their resources in things that are going to be for them, that they can enjoy. It's quite a contrast from the one who's walking the way of the cross. Whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, whose glory is in their shame. You know, this one, it's almost like the, the Romans 1 spiral, as I think about. The, the enemies of the cross tend to take pride in the worst of perversions. And, you know, I was reminded as I was thinking about this, I was reminded of uh, some time ago in our previous presidency when the lighthouse got lit up like a rainbow. You might recall that after they passed the bill and were celebrating that gay marriage is now something that, um, hey, hey, we won. And the lighthouse, they decorated the lighthouse in a rainbow color. I don't know what it did to you, but it was disgusting. Taking especially a symbol of God in the rainbow and applying it to something so wicked and perverted. This is, this is what the enemies of the cross do, church. They, they glory in perversion. They glory in this, this shameful stuff that they're participating in. And they parade it around and they think it's a wonderful thing. It's sad. You think about what's news worthy today how often do you hear of one glorying in their vile deeds and and, and the media is a helpful tool here 
because they tend to consistently present the message of gross misconduct as though it's necessary to put forward so that people can hear how bad it really is. And there are so many unashamedly speaking up for shameful, shameful conduct. The enemies of the cross are those who glory in their shame. But these are also folks who set their mind on earthly things. They set their mind on things of the earth. Colossians chapter 3 says, If then you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above. I don't know if you could be any more clear. This, this is not really a hard, difficult deal. He tells us where we're to set our mind. Set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth. Why? For you died, and your life is now hidden with God in Christ Jesus. And when Christ, who is our life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Romans chapter 8, verses 5 through 8. Paul says, for those who live according to the flesh, they set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God. Enmity. Enmity. It's a conflict with God. It's not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can be. So then, Paul says, those who are in the flesh... Cannot please God. We want to please God. It's important we discern enemy tendencies. This is one of them. These are folks who set their mind on things here on the earth. Things that they think about. Listen, their mind is on things here on the earth. Why would that be? That they habitually operate that way. I would venture to say that the majority of these enemies are not Taking in his word. See, when we take in the word of God, the the Bible talks about this renewing of our mind. We need to constantly be renewing our mind because every day, and you could probably all give testimony witness to this, you and me, we are bombarded with the enemy and the messages from the enemy to live like the world. Just fit in, just conform. Come on, just be like us. All the more reason to stand. Stand in the midst of the opposition. You sow to the things here on earth. You reap what the earth has to give you. According to the Bible, the the sow to the flesh, you reap destruction. Sow to the spirit, you reap everlasting life. It's this idea that by their actions, you can discern the enemies of the cross. Sinclair Ferguson says, how we think influences how we live. Think about it. How you think influences how you live, what you put into play, how you operate. So if we're going to stand fast in the Lord, if we're going to stand fast in the way of the cross, we need to note 
the godly examples and patterns and remember to be the godly example and pattern. Strive for that as well. Discern enemy tendencies. And here's the last one. Verses 20 and 21. We need to hold fast to our heavenly citizenship. Hold fast. If we're going to stand fast, we need to hold fast. Hold fast to what? Our heavenly citizenship. Who we belong to. Look at the text. For our citizenship is in heaven. From which we also eagerly wait. Eagerly wait for whom? The Savior. The Lord Jesus Christ. He doesn't leave that up to guessing who the Savior is. The Lord Jesus Christ. Who will transform our lowly body, that it may be conformed to his glorious body, according to the working by which, love these words, he is able even to subdue all things to himself. We see here our citizenship in heaven is in contrast to the things of the earth that he just spoke about in regard to the tendencies of the enemy. We see also in chapter 1, verse 27, when he says, only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel. It's conduct worthy of a citizen. Remember, we talked about that back then. Let your conduct. And here he's, he's using the word, it's the same word. He's speaking about our citizenship, our commonwealth, our identity. Where's our name written? In heaven. Our position. You know, you look at Ephesians chapter 2, verse 6. And we see that by grace he saved us. But it also says raised us up together. Made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Positionally, we are there. (laughs) Are we looking forward to the reality of that? Holding fast to our heavenly citizenship. As citizens, we... Eagerly wait. One of the, I think one of the best passages here that kind of elaborates and and repeats this idea. Romans chapter 8, beginning with verse uh, 19. For the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. Verse 23, not only that, but we we also who have the first fruits of the Spirit... Even we ourselves grown within ourselves eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body. Verse 25, but if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with perseverance. That phrase, eagerly wait, eagerly wait. We also see this in in Titus, a similar wording in Titus chapter 2. By the grace of God, the grace that brings salvation has appeared to all men. Teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age, doing what? Looking for, eagerly waiting, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people. Friends, it's important as we think about holding fast. 
and we look at the text, holding fast to our heavenly citizenship. It's important that we see what it is we live for and what it is we're waiting for. Just as the enemy, his tendency is to celebrate his and look for ways to uh, indulge his flesh. He's living for the now. He's living for the self. And Paul says here that those of us who have heavenly citizenship, we're holding fast to our heavenly citizenship because one of the things that we hold to when we understand our heavenly citizenship is that we are waiting for a savior. We're waiting for that culmination of our salvation. We're waiting for his return. And he actually speaks about this return of our savior. He goes on and he talks about in verse 21 this Savior who will transform our lowly body that it may be conformed to His glorious body. Now, there are a whole lot of things we don't know yet. But one thing we do know is that these bodies we have are going to be changed. In the twinkling of an eye, they'll be changed. We go from a body that's mortal to being clothed with the immortal. I was thinking about this and how wonderful this is. And and in timing of it is really interesting too in that this is a month where we're oftentimes celebrating the arrival of Christ. You know, when Jesus came down here, he took on flesh and blood, didn't he? He took on our form. You know, there's coming a day, listen, this is good news. There's coming a day when we are going to take on His body. Guess who gets the better deal? We do. We get to take on not only his body, all the attributes, all those things about him. We are going to be clothed in this body. This body, this resurrection body. You remember some of the events in Christ's life of his resurrection body? Remember how he just like popped in and out of houses? I mean, he's, he's talking and he's still able to eat and do these things in a resurrection. There's a whole lot we don't know. But one thing we do know is that these lowly, I love the description. Body, it's a body of lowly, we could substitute maybe humility. This body of humiliation is going to be exchanged, if you will, for a body of glory. This body that is the encasement of sickness and suffering and all the stuff that happens because of our sin. There's going to be a day when he comes back that this body we know is going to be changed in the twinkling of an eye. It's going to be changed. And again, I don't know all the details and the hows and all the winds. And I'm not even going to describe that because I don't, there's a lot about it I don't know. But what I do know is what I'm reading here in the text. He's going, going to transform our lowly body that it might be conformed to his glorious body. Well, you might say, well, how does that all work? Well, the next part of the verse tells us, according to the, to the working. The working, that word working is energy. It's an energy that's oftentimes in the text described specifically to God's work. It's his work. Working. Christ himself is working. And the text says, according to the working by which he is able. He is able. Love that. 
you know, there is nothing. In fact, we, we, we saw this in chapter 2 when it was talking about Christ. And God says there's going to come a day when every knee is going to bow and every tongue is going to confess that Jesus is Lord. He's going to be Lord over all. God is the one who made this creation and Christ himself was there with him in creation. Nothing was made that has been made Christ didn't have a hand and part of. Listen, if Christ can do that, don't you think he can change your body? He can change your receptacle. He can change all these things because when he talks about subduing, it's the idea of bringing under authority. God has given Jesus all authority under heaven and earth. Given him all authority. Do you believe he can do this? I believe it wholeheartedly he can do this. I don't, again, I don't know what it all looks like, but I'm excited and I get a new body and it's going to be like his. If it's like his, I know it's going to be a good one. This is good news. Hold fast to our heavenly citizenship. As we think about holding fast to our heavenly citizenship, one of the things that brings forward is, is thinking about these things that happen in this life that will bog us down, will weigh us down. Let us not look at the temporary. These are but for a moment, right? This light affliction, Paul even calls it. And, and these things are working for us, working for us through the power of Christ working in us, working for us something wonderful, something glorious and yet to come. That's why Paul says that we're to keep our eyes fixed upon the eternal and not the things right here and now. Oh, there's something wonderful coming. Heaven, our heavenly citizenship. Hold fast. If we're going to stand fast in the way of the cross, we must hold fast to who we are in Christ Jesus. All the more reason friends, that the church is encouraging one another, that brothers and sisters are encouraging one another in the faith to walk in the way of the cross, to walk this way, because the world is not going to give you the picture story of how to walk in the way of the cross. I was thinking of, as I was drawn to this holding fast, I was reminded of our, of our three-year-old who, who has a, a blanket, which we affectionately in our house call the tag blanket. And that tag blanket is, is a blanket of security. It's a blanket of comfort. Maybe you, when you were younger, had one of those. I was reminded of that and I was thinking about, do we see our heavenly citizenship as our comfort, as our hope, as our blessed assurance of things to come? Do we hold fast to that? Friends, I want to encourage you as we close this morning. we're going to stand fast in the way of the Lord, in the way of the cross. By the way, the way of the cross, uh, maybe we could put it this way. The way of the cross requires that there is suffering. Remember, Jesus himself said to deny yourself, to take up your cross and then to follow. Hard to follow him minus the suffering. I know we don't like that. But we need to understand that not only is it his way, but even in the suffering, he's going to produce in us something that will not ever be produced unless and until we go through the suffering. You won't know it. So rejoice in it because as we go through it, he goes through it with us, doesn't he? We don't go through it alone. The way of the cross. If we're going to stand fast... Let's note the godly examples and patterns. And let's be that pattern and example for others. 
let's note to follow and let's also make sure we're noting which ones to avoid and paths to avoid. Discern enemy tendencies. Discern enemy tendencies. Know the truth. Recognize the counterfeit by knowing what the real thing is. That's what they say about the money, right? How can you tell a counterfeit dollar? They know what the real dollar looks like. How do, you, how do you know the enemy? How do you know what the enemy looks like? How do you know the tendencies? Do you know what a man and woman of God is to look like? Do you know a pattern? Have you seen a pattern? Do you have that before you? Do you see Christ himself as your pattern, your supreme pattern and example for living? And then hold fast to your heavenly citizenship. Hold fast. Hold on. As difficult, as hard as this life might be right now, the winds, some of you, the winds of this life are blowing hard. Hurricane, gale force winds are hitting you. And we'll end right where we began. All the more reason to stand. Stand fast in the Lord. Let's pray. Father, there's a great need to stand fast. We recognize it. We recognize the winds swirling all around us. The enemy is pressing in hard. In light of that, Lord, I pray that we would note those who are endeavoring to live godly lives, that we would see their lives as a picture of what it is to really live this out. And Lord, I pray that you would teach us, that you would work in us in such a way that we might become one that others imitate as we are imitating Christ ourselves. Father, help us to discern the tendencies of the enemies of the cross, to know what those tendencies are, to know the schemes of the evil one. Father, help us to hold fast to our heavenly citizenship. I pray that being in Christ Jesus matters greatly to us, matters so much that we desire to live regardless of the suffering. In fact, expecting it to come, but knowing that even in the midst of it, you are with us. Your rod and your staff, they comfort us. So, Father, thank you. We rejoice in this good word today and pray that everyone here would truly be able to stand fast in the Lord. May we all persevere in that way, endeavoring to please you with this one life that we've been given. I pray in Christ's name. Amen.